Well, I would normally be saying if you've got a Bible, <laughs> turn with me again, but I, I see with the restrictions in place, we don't have Bibles. But we're going to be looking at uh, Luke 24, verses uh, 36 to 49, this great account of Jesus' resurrection. Thank you. We have it on the screen. Thank you. Well, you know, history has its fair share of events that cause uh, controversy. Um, I was reminded of a modern-day example just last year. You remember there was the celebration of 50 years since the Apollo 11 moon landings. I know it's 50 years because my, my wife was born uh, that year, so there we go. I, I can actually remember as a very small boy listening to my parents' radio set on the Sunday evening as the drama of the lunar modules uh, landing on the surface of the moon played out. I was hoping you'd be all looking at me going, well, surely not, you're far too young for that, but possibly not. Um, but, you know, I was surprised to see that a poll that was taken to mark that anniversary, I think, said that one in six Britons believed that the whole thing was actually a fake. <laughs> I found that very surprising um, that people thought that. But just imagine for the moment that that was the case, that they, they, Neil Armstrong didn't really land on the moon. Well, it would be a massive, it would be a big news story, wouldn't it, for sure? But actually, uh, if you think about it, what difference would it really make to your and my life tomorrow morning or next week or in a month's time? Oh, it would certainly give us something different to talk about than the weather and coronavirus. But, you know, but, and what in a thousand years' time? Well, it would be most likely no more than a footnote of history. And yet what, what we read about earlier in Luke's Gospel and what we're going to think about this morning, the physical resurrection of Jesus, it also divides opinion. But in contrast to the Apollo 11 mission, whether it's true or not has great consequences for everyone. You know, the Apostle Paul himself said that if it's not true, if Jesus didn't rise, then Christians are the most pitiful people on the planet. And to be frank, this morning we are just wasting our time. But if it's true, and we certainly believe it is true, it doesn't just have big consequences for us if we are Christians. There are massive implications for everyone. There is a huge amount riding on it. And, you know, I think sometimes uh, we perhaps neglect the resurrection. Uh, we don't think about it perhaps as much as we, we ought to. We, we perhaps just focus it, about it on, at Easter. But when you look at the, uh, the, the Acts of the Apostles and the Apostles' teaching, they really focused on the importance of the resurrection. And because it really matters, it's a, it's a really good thing that we have orderly accounts uh, in the Gospels, like this one written by Dr. Luke, a Gentile doctor, who at the start of his Gospel tells us that he has carefully investigated everything from eyewitnesses so that his good friend, Theophilus, may know the certainty of what Luke is telling him about Jesus. We, we, we certainly live in an uncertain world and uncertain times, but what Luke first wants us to know in this passage is that Jesus' physical resurrection is something you can be absolutely sure of. 
Well, why don't we, let's have a look at this passage and, and what happened. So it was late on that Sunday evening, that first Easter Sunday. Earlier in the day, the women had gone to the tomb and they found it was empty. Uh, then we had seen how two from Emmaus had encountered the risen Jesus, but they didn't recognize him until their eyes were open when he broke bread in front of them. Now, now there's 10 of the disciples, uh, the two from Emmaus, and a number of other followers of Jesus. They're gathered in a room. And you might say they're experiencing their own version of lockdown because John tells us the doors are locked. And unsurprisingly, they're talking about the amazing events of the day when Jesus just appears. He just is there, standing there right amongst them. Peace be with you, he says. But of course, they're anything at peace. They're startled and they're frightened. Their friend, their Lord, is standing right in front of them and yet all sorts of doubts fill their minds. They think, their first thought is, we must be seeing a ghost. Now, if you just put yourself into their position for a moment, I wonder how would you have reacted? I don't think I would have responded very differently. It's true, Jesus had told them on a number of occasions that he must suffer and die and on the third day he would rise again. But it's pretty obvious from the events of that first Easter Sunday that none of them were really expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Certainly not like this. I mean, the women went to the tomb with spices. Why? Because they fully expected to find Jesus' dead body there. The two on the Maus Road, their hopes were shattered and even when they heard rumours of Jesus being alive, it didn't make them excited or want to stay in Jerusalem with any anticipation that it could be true. But we see in verse 38 that Jesus knew exactly what they're thinking and how they're feeling. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Well, they might have been uh, experiencing their own version of uh, a lockdown, but social distancing was not required. Jesus encourages them to draw close, to see and feel for themselves, to touch him, and see that he, he has real flesh and real bones, to squeeze him, to shake his hand, uh, so that they might know that, to see that he's no ghost. You see, Jesus wants them to be certain about that. He wants also them to be certain about something else, and that is that it's really him. That he's not some imposter, but he's the very same Jesus of Nazareth they have seen and heard and followed for the past three years. That he is the very same Jesus they saw nailed to the wooden cross, the one they saw crucified outside the city walls. And the very marks of such a cruel execution provide the perfect identification, the perfect ID they need to be sure. Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. He says, see the wounds of those nails. It's me. It's I myself, he says to them. And yet... Verse 41 tells us 
they still did not believe it. They still couldn't believe it because of joy and amazement. I wonder if you've ever received such good news you couldn't believe it. It seems too good to be true. My wife, Joanne, received an email some weeks ago, seemingly from the tax office, saying she was owed a tax refund. My first reaction was, it sounds good, too good. I doubt it's real. I mean, don't we receive so many false emails, promising things or saying things that are just not true? Was this really true? They're also, in another way, times in sport, when an athlete wins the gold or breaks the world record or, or someone scores the winning goal in the World Cup final and moments later a reporter sticks a microphone under their chin and says, how does it feel? And instead of some eloquent explanation of their inner feelings of elation, all they can say is, I can't believe it. I don't know. I think it's going to be a while before it really sinks in. Well, I think both of those examples perhaps illustrate what was going on here. After the devastation of seeing Jesus die in such a cruel, humiliating manner, and having the devastation of their hopes built over up over the past three years extinguished, it probably did seem both too good to be true but also too incredible to take in that this really was Jesus physically, bodily, standing there right amongst them. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their disbelief. Uh, he, doesn't dis he doesn't rebuke them because they needed so much evidence to convince them. He simply asks them if they have anything to eat. Earlier in the day, he had disappeared from the sight of the two from Emmaus before any food was eating. But any lingering doubts were now about to be dispelled as he eats his broiled fish supper right in front of them. It was clear he was no ghost. His body was not in the tomb because it had been raised to life. It was a renewed body, yes, in some ways different, apparently able to divide certain laws of physics in the way that he came into the room, but nonetheless it was unmistakably his body with flesh and bones. Jesus had been bodily, physically raised from the dead. He really had defeated death. Now I think it's worth noting that in our society uh, there is a tendency to be dismissive of people who lived long ago certainly those who lived 2,000 years ago. Uh, you know, I think sometimes our, our modern attitude towards people in the past is a bit like um, teenagers' attitude towards their parents, doubting their uh, powers of re reasoning. You know, uh, we can be tempted to think that such people in the past were primitive people who were far too willing to believe things we as sophisticated technology, technologically savvy 21st century citizens would see right through. But I hope you see as we looked as we looked at that, just those few verses of 
Dr. Luke's carefully researched eyewitness account, far from being gullible or credulous, they actually required an awful lot of evidence. They were very down-to-earth sort of people who took a lot of convincing before they were going to dare to believe. You see, these credible eyewitnesses' eyes were opened to see the clear evidence that he really was risen from the dead. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He wants to show them more so that they can be absolutely certain because this is so important. And so what he does next is he opens their minds to see the evidence of the scriptures. In verse 44 he says, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. As we said earlier, Jesus had told them on a number of occasions before he was arrested that he must suffer and die and on the third day he would rise again. But it's not until he opens their minds that the penny finally drops. See, he opens their minds to see the truth, not just of what he has told them, but how every part of the Old Testament scriptures, the three parts of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they all pointed to him. And how in particular they spoke of three things concerning himself. That he must suffer, that he would rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. I think it's quite likely that one of the scriptures he opened their minds to understand was Isaiah 53. Of course, we don't know exactly which ones, but it's very, I think it's very likely that he would have turned to Isaiah 53. A remarkable passage written 700 years or more before Jesus was even born. This is what the prophet says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. You can just imagine as they can see those wounds in Jesus' hands and his feet as he says those words. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah goes on to say, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The penny dropped. Up until now, Jesus' suffering must have seemed like just an awful tragedy. What a waste. What a disaster. And yet, Jesus opened their minds to see that this wasn't a disaster or a tragedy. This was God's plan. The Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's based on evidence. Evidence of eyewitnesses, evidence of scripture, 
prophecies written hundreds, even thousands of years before, pointing to Jesus, God's promised Messiah. But, you know, these words also remind us that you can have all the facts, you can have all the evidence, it can be very clear, yet we still cannot see it. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of being better than others. Without God opening our eyes and opening our minds to the Bible and the evidence in it, we cannot and will not believe. That was true here. Even for those who had spent virtually every day of the past few years listening and watching and talking with him. When we think about that, I think that should make us very thankful that God has opened our eyes. It should make us very humble. It should also make us very prayerful for others. Because we are so dead in our sins, in our natural state, that unless Jesus opens our minds, the minds of others, we cannot see. Jesus' resurrection also demonstrates what we saw with the children earlier. We all want someone who will never let us down, who we can rely upon at all times. And here we see in Jesus' death and resurrection that God truly is the one we can count on. Jesus' words, every one of them, can be trusted. Which means, I mean, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that was vindicated by his resurrection. It means he has the authority to speak to us with absolute truth. It means that putting his words into action is the only solid foundation for our lives. Well, getting back to our, our main theme which is of this part, which is that Jesus' physical resurrection is something we can be absolutely sure of. With eyes and minds that are opened, we can see that it's something we can be absolutely certain of. And that's brilliant, that we can have something that's so important and know for sure. But at the beginning we said uh, Jesus' resurrection isn't just an interesting historical fact. Jesus' resurrection is something that has huge implications. Jesus' resurrection matters. And I just want us to think in our remaining time, about two ways in which Jesus' resurrection matters to us. First of all, it matters because it means we can be confident in the great hope that we have beyond this life. We know that as, as Christian believers, our, our hope is not just for blessings in this life. As, as one song puts it, there is a hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning beckoning grave and it's the truth and the nature of Jesus' resurrection that gives us that hope according to uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Jesus' bodily resurrection is a picture of the believer's own future existence in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. See, the wonderful thing is that the spiritual state of existence that we enter as believers when we die will not be our final one. I mean, it will be glorious to be with Christ for those who die in Christ to go to be with him. But there is something even more wonderful when Jesus returns. All those who've trusted in him will receive glorious new bodies like his. Renewed bodies that in some way are different. Bodies that are free from the curse of sin, free from pain, free from disease, free from aging and free from death. And yet renewed bodies that are in many ways the same just as Jesus' body was able to see and touch and smell and taste. All in uh, a new creation that has been set free from its bondage to decay. To be able to experience those things in a, a perfect physical world, very much like our own, but without the brokenness and death and suffering. A world just as God intended it to be. You see, Jesus' physical resurrection means we have a great and glorious future, eternal future that goes on forever to look forward to. And, you know, that hope should be something that helps us to persevere and live for him each and every day. Because it means that a life lived for him is not wasted or empty. It's not a pointless life. It's a life that has meaning and purpose and far from being pitied. We are actually, we should be envied because our lives and what we do for Christ has eternal value. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Because we can be sure that Jesus is risen, we can be sure that our current struggles and our sadnesses and all the things we face in this life are worth it because we too can look forward to the day when we too will be raised with new resurrection bodies and eternal glory. As the old hymn says, because, I, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Jesus' resurrection means we can be confident in the great hope that we have. But Jesus' resurrection also means we can be confident in the gospel. Confident in the need for the gospel, Confident in the power of the gospel, confident about our role in sharing the gospel. Just have a look again at verse 47 and verse 48. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Uh, these, verse 47, in speaking of repentance and forgiveness, I think there is... Behind those words, an implication of a future judgment that people everywhere need to be ready for. And the resurrection means we can be sure about that coming day. 
Paul, when he was speaking to the people of Athens in Acts 17, said, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, I think it's very easy to to lose sight, perhaps particularly in times like this, when there are so many needs, that, that actually our own and our families and our neighbours and our work colleagues' greatest need is to be ready to face that day, to face the risen Lord Jesus, the one who has been appointed as judge. And we know that for any of us, on our own record, we will stand condemned already, for we have all rejected God's rule in our lives and lived for ourselves. But the resurrection doesn't just uh, warn us of the judgment to come and, and make that more certain. It also assures us that there really is a way to be saved from that condemnation. Jesus said that he'd come to give his life as a ransom for many. He'd come to pay the penalty for our transgressions and iniquities, just as Isaiah said the Messiah would do. But it's the resurrection that means we can be sure of it. Um, going back to my wife, uh, wife's email promising a tax refund. Well, a few weeks later, uh, weeks later, a letter arrived in the post with those four letters, HMRC. Rarely spells good news, I know. But anyway, she opened it, and great surprise, it was a check that we paid into our account. It was credited. The check proved the promises that I doubted were absolutely true. Now, it's a bit of a poor illustration, and I have to tell you that there wasn't great amazement and joy. Um, the check was for 26 quid, so I mean, it was <laughs> not exactly life-changing. But in a much, much greater way, Jesus' res resurrection is the validation, the proof that demonstrates that all those promises that Jesus made, the promises of Isaiah and, and, and throughout the Bible, the promises that our iniquities, our sins were really laid on him, and that his sacrifice for us was accepted by God. The proof is there in the resurrection. Of course, we, we can choose, and those that we seek to witness to can choose to ignore him. But if we do so, we do so at our peril. Or we can bow the knee to him and submit to him and admit our sin and put our trust in him and his death for us. It's a wonderful thing that we can know because Jesus is risen. We are completely and fully forgiven if we do that. Well, such great news was not news the disciples were to keep to themselves. Their eyes and minds had been opened. But now it was their mouths that needed to be opened as well. And we'll finish with this in verse 47 and 8. It says, And repentance and for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power 
from on high. You know, the the truth of Jesus' resurrection naturally led to telling others the good news. Uh, Earlier in the day, when the women saw the tomb was empty and heard the angels tell them, he's not here, he's risen, what did they do? They went straight away to tell the disciples the good news. When the two from Emmaus had their eyes opened and they recognized Jesus, what did they do? They rushed back, even though it was late in the evening, to Jerusalem to tell the others Jesus was alive. And now Jesus is saying to all of them, I want you to go and do the same. They were to be his witnesses. Witnesses are not there to expand their own theories or philosophies, but to testify to the facts of what they've seen and heard. And they were to start right where they, right where they were in Jerusalem. And then to go out to all nations. No one should be left out. No one was outside this offer of forgiveness. Now, of course, this morning, we're not in exactly the same position as them. None of us are eyewitnesses of Jesus' death or resurrection. But, you know, as you look at these verses, we do have the privilege of being part of the fulfillment of them and of God's great plan of taking this message of forgiveness to the nations. We are one of the nations. Uh, We too can be witnesses for him. We can point others to the disciples' eyewitness accounts. We can be witnesses of what Jesus has done in our own lives. Just simply telling others how he has changed our lives, how he has rescued us. We can be witnesses of the truths in God's word that our minds have been opened to see. You see, it's not about how dramatic our life story is. I mean, some of you may have had very exciting lives, or it might have been very ordinary like mine. But that doesn't matter because we are witnesses of what Jesus has done. And that means we have the most amazing story to share. As with the women and the two from Emmaus, when we have something good and exciting and amazing to share, uh, we generally can't wait to tell others, can we? When something good happens in our families, someone gets a job, someone's getting married, uh, a new child is born, there's great excitement. We can't wait to tell others. Well, the truth that Jesus died and physically rose again should excite us too because it changes everything. Of course, it's not something we can do on our own. Uh, We need help. Uh, And here we're probably quite like that little group locked down in that room in Jerusalem. A group of fearful people People who knew it could be very costly to speak about Jesus. A group who were very conscious of their past failures. They knew how badly they'd let Jesus down. But does Jesus discard them? No. He doesn't discard us either. He chooses them and he chooses us and empowers them and he empowers us to be his witnesses. He promises them the Holy Spirit that each of us have if we put our trust in him. A Holy Spirit who is able to transform the witness of fearful, weak people, just like them and just like us, 
to embolden them, to enable them to speak about Jesus. And by the Spirit's power for minds and hearts to be open to understand and believe in spite of all the shortcomings of the witnesses. The resurrection really is the greatest news in the whole world. It's news we can be sure of. It's news that matters. It's news that means our faith is to be envied, not pitied. It's news our world desperately needs to hear. It's good news that is too good for you to keep to yourselves. Let's pray. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. Thank you uh, that he rose, not just as a spirit, but physically alive with a a body that could uh, touch and taste. Thank you that the tomb was empty. He was truly risen again. And Father, we thank you for the uh, credible eyewitness accounts. Thank you for the evidence of Scripture that can help us to be sure and certain of what we have believed. Heavenly Father, we thank you too that because Jesus is risen, we can be sure of the great hope that we have for eternity, that one day we too will be raised in the new creation, to be able to enjoy being with you and enjoying a world free from its brokenness and death and decay. We thank you for that great hope. And we thank you too for the gospel. Thank you uh, for the confidence we have because Jesus is alive. Father, we pray that you would help us to be those witnesses. Please help us to take this great news that Jesus has defeated death and that there is a way for us to be forgiven. Please help us in this coming week, we pray, to be good witnesses for you. Please help us to be people who bring hope to a world that is without hope. Please help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.